I think some people see Trump back on his heels right now. They see these polls and they say, oh, great, it's all going to be over in November. No, it's not. with refusefascism.org. I'm Sam, one of those volunteers. Today we're sharing a conversation I had this week with writer Jeff Charlotte, author of the book, The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, which has been turned into a Netflix documentary. He continues to cover the alliance between the American Christian fascist movement and Trump. His recent reporting for Vanity Fair illustrates in detail how Trump has made his re-election campaign into a militant religious crusade fomenting on conspiracy theories and oratory that marshals violence. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeff Charlotte, and we'll link to his latest article in the show notes. Yesterday was the 4th of July, and we saw major demonstrations across the country demanding an end to white supremacy. In most large cities, protesters also gathered to demand Trump Pence out now, including in Washington, D.C., New York City, Chicago, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and more. You can find coverage of these protests at refusefascism.org. This demand must spread and intensify. As we heard on Friday night with Trump's fascist speech at Mount Rushmore, he responds to the people's demand for justice and an end to racism, like a cornered rat, lashing out and threatening to bring down even worse repression than we've seen yet. It is ludicrous on the one hand to see a relic from the past like Trump order the mobilization of all available resources to protect statues, monuments to slavery and genocide, while real live human beings are murdered by police or die in the tens of thousands from the pandemic that is still raging. But he has only become more dangerous as a result of the spreading movement. And we all from our various points of view need to reckon with the implications of this danger. The model of sustained mass nonviolent protest that demands the regime's ouster continues to be the way we can change this dynamic but we have to raise the demand. The Trump-Pence regime must go now. When he says he's going to war with so-called quote-unquote left-wing fascism, what we need to understand is that every struggle for justice is in his crosshairs. It's essential that we come together to drive him and his regime from power now. We're going to be sharing the interview from Jeff Charlotte, but first, we want to take a moment to honor the life of Summer Taylor, murdered last night by a car driving through a crowd of protesters in Seattle. I want to send love and solidarity to Summer's family and friends and everyone in the streets of Seattle. Summer was standing on the right side of history, and their death must not be in vain. We have been taking to the streets in the face of violent threats for several years now. We must work to protect people's lives but also ensure that when there is a sacrifice, it isn't for nothing. We have to drive out this regime, and we each have to play our part in ending this nightmare, refusing to accept a fascist America, and forging a better world. Now let's hear from Jeff Charlotte. Hi, Jeff. Thanks so much for for joining us tonight. It's great to have you with us. So I wanted to get straight into the meat of your latest article, in Vanity Fair, your your article, He's the Chosen One to Run America, which I encourage everybody to go and read. 
you quote Pastor Jesse Lee Peterson saying Trump is the great white hope. And then you go on to say he says this because number one, he is white. Number two, he is of God. And you kind of walk us through that saying to them, this means Trump is the chosen one and his words are gospel. And I was hoping that you can explain to us why these true believers, for which you you detail in your article, many of them, would believe that God would choose, of all people, Donald Trump. You know, in some ways, the answer is, is just that, of all people. The very fact that Trump seems such an unlikely choice, as everybody says, thrice married, and even his defenders admit a guy was a womanizer. Some will say, yeah, oh yeah, he's worse than that. He's the most unlikely of choice. Well, that's, that's just proof that God is using him because if a person like that can become president, how could that happen on its own? There must be divine work there. I mean, and part of that is also the result of Trump going and saying, look, I'm willing to make the deal. I'm willing to be a tool for the Christian right in return for your support. So partly it's transactional just cutting a deal, and partly it's theological. That's a sort of a long-standing part of the Christian right that I think maybe people outside of the movement don't see. And partly because in politics has always been emphasized that idea of a person of you know good character and so on. But let's not forget, once I was lost, now I'm found. The prodigal son, the sinner, the idea that Trump, in fact, has led the life that gives him, from their point of view, the wisdom to be of use to God. I think that the notion of the redeemed quality, I think, is something that you see in in a lot of those who follow Trump as well, including some of the other more theocratic, if you will, members of the regime. So that I was wondering, <laughs> you have Donald Trump, unlikely candidate to be cohering this movement. Why has Trump, in your opinion, been able to advance Christian fascism in a way that Bush and Reagan could only dream of doing. And related to that, how was he able to bring so many diverse strands of Christian fundamentalism, Christian fascism together, including very different Christian fascist leaders like Pence versus Pompeo, Barr, Azar. They're not all the same. They're they're different. And how how is he able to bring that together? Well, that's a very good point. I think a lot of people outside evangelicalism, Christian conservatism, the Catholic conservative movement of which Barr is a part, they tend to see this great big monolith and this shared values. And they don't realize that a lot of these groups really are, are there's great factionalism splitting. And, and it's worth understanding if you want to fight that movement, know where the fault lines are. It's worth knowing, for instance, that there's a, a pastor named Ralph Drollinger who leads a, a weekly Bible study in the White House. And then there's the folks who run the National Prayer Breakfast, known as a fellowship of the family, who I've written a lot about. They hate each other. They're on record hating each other. They're coming from different theological perspectives. But just as you say, the moment, and I don't know how much of this is Trump's strength and how much of this is the moment, is the convergence of different strands of Christian conservatism. So when you go to a Christian right rally and you sort of move around on the floor and talk to people, you're gonna find plenty of Catholic conservatives, you're gonna find plenty of evangelicals, you're gonna find evangelicals of the end of the world is coming soon variety and evangelicals of the, I have an orphanage in Haiti variety. And you're gonna find a lot of people who don't go to church 
and yet they still think Trump has this divine mandate, which is, it's an interesting element because it's a lot like actually Trump's hero, Vladimir Putin. I've done a lot of reporting in, in Russia as well. And Putin really nationalizes this idea of Christianity. Church attendance in Russia is minuscule. Nobody goes to church, but so many Putin supporters love the idea of this nationalist Russian church. So it is here with Trump supporters. And I think what he did and what he's done for, you know, this kind of the Christian right that's different than W or some of these other candidates is he doesn't particularly care about anything but what's his. You know, Mike Pence says, I, I want this, that, and the other, health and human services, um, housing and urban development. No skin off Trump's back. He's willing to give away, in other words, the whole farm. And that's how he assembled what is by any measure the most fundamentalist administration in U.S. history. I mean, really, in U.S. history. That goes all the way back. Uh, certainly more fundamentalist in upper ranks and also in the middle ranks than under Reagan or W. It's really kind of unprecedented. And the Christian right has noticed this. I mean, those who did not support Trump now do support Trump because they said we're getting more done now than we ever have. And what are some of the things that they would point to as their top victories they're getting done now more than they ever have? Well, I mean, some of the, the very visible things that we all see, the judges, and not just the Supreme Court judges, but the 200 federal judges have been put in place under Trump. That's a good reminder. I think some people see Trump back on his heels right now. They see these polls and they say, oh, great, it's all going to be over in November. No, it's not. Those 200 judges are going to be with us for a long time. But not just those 200 judges. The remaking of so many government departments and agencies. The burnishing of resumes. You have the political appointees, maybe a political appointee at the EPA, and then the lifers, the civil servants that they promote based on their loyalty to uh, the regime. All that endures whether Trump comes or goes. And, and you see in all those areas, you see these Christian right goals. So for instance, EPA is a great example. Deregulation, this sort of assault on the environment for a lot of Christian conservatives, that's a theological issue. That's a religious issue. Let go and let God, as the saying goes. It's a kind of laissez-faire fundamentalism, a, a biblical capitalism, as some call it. This idea that the unregulated market is the market where they get confused about, you know, that concept of the invisible hand that comes to us from Adam Smith. And a human economist, they think the invisible hand belongs to God. An unregulated market is one that God is running to his ends. So they'll look at that. They'll look at rollbacks and the Justice Department. They are not interested in the civil rights prosecutions, but they are interested in the protection of what's called religious freedom. And it's not religious freedom. We don't have to get into an argument. Lefties don't have to say, well, I'm against religious freedom. No, we're for religious freedom. What they're doing is not religious freedom. Not religious freedoms. It's not First Amendment, which is, of course, remember, freedom of and from. It's liberty of conscience. So they see all of this happening, but the rank and file religious right. And that's what's really interesting because something so unusual happened with Trump. It used to be the sort of the Christian right warlords, the big leaders and so on. They told the people how to vote. They made an effective electoral block. In 2016, and you see the same dynamic in 2020, the elite Christian right leaders, in 2016 especially, they were very uneasy with him. But the populist Christian right masses adored him. They're going with Trump. 
And if you want to keep your job at the Southern Baptist Convention, you are as well. And there's a moment in that recent speech in Tulsa when Trump went back and he opened up his rallies. I, I wrote about this. There's a long story in Vanity Fair and then a short story about the Tulsa speech I, just because it was such a, I think it was a turning point speech. I, I followed up with it. He's talking about some contract negotiations he did. Trump is very good at working a crowd, but he can lose them too. And they're getting bored and he can sense it. And so then he just snarls. And so then I said, you dumb son of a bitch. And the crowd roars. You could see that roar ripple out on Twitter too, because although only 6,000 people attended the rally, 7 million people watched it on TV. You could see people were overjoyed. And what was the great moment? Did he call someone dumb son of a bitch? Who did he call dumb son of a bitch? I don't know. Why did he call him dumb son of a bitch? Doesn't matter. He spoke this anger. And for a lot of believers, that's a righteous anger. That's a righteous anger. That's a, a, an acknowledgement of how broken the world is. And he calls it out. He is, for so many of the believers, he is the, the man chosen for this moment, the God-shaped man as one evangelical leader uh, Lance Wallnow puts it, the God-shaped man, precisely because he's, well, as Lance Wallnow also puts it, he's a wrecking ball. He says, God is not looking for a sheep right now. God is looking for what he calls a chaos candidate, someone to rip it up, to tear it down. The more angry, the more vile, the more bricks Trump throws, the more he is fulfilling in their mind this mandate he's being given by God. He's being used by God. You can disagree. Some will say, He's personally pious. Some say, I don't think Trump's particularly pious. It doesn't matter. Clearly, God is using him. That was extremely clarifying, especially one person wrote about how helpful it was to hear about his Tulsa speech being a turning point. I had the privilege, and I hope others who are tuning in did so as well, to listen to your recent interview that you did with Bill Moyers on his podcast. And in that, you talked about Trump being most dangerous when he's cornered. You said that we forget that he is still has the full arsenal of the U.S. government at his command. And it is at his command. Unlike many others, you know, we talked briefly about this before we went on, you are sounding the alarm on the dangers posed by Trump and this regime. In particular, you've illustrated in your recent Vanity Fair articles and other interviews, what was this turning point in the Tulsa rally? For me, part of what was not the most shocking, but most starkly evident at the Tulsa rally is where he, in graphic detail, weaponized, you know, the white supremacist trope of men of color preying on white women. I was wondering, with that context, why do you think that you are an outlier? Why do you think that the narrative of him failing, being ineffective, bumbling, decompensating, he's on the downturn, he's definitely gonna, gonna be out, continues to prevail despite all evidence to the contrary. His recent rally is just one example on top of all the suffering he successfully inflicted over the past three and a half years. Well, it's a much more reassuring story to tell ourselves that he's just a fool and that his followers are fools, that it was a mistake, a burp, uh, an aberration, and that we'll quickly get back on track rather than saying, oh, wait a minute, maybe he's a culmination or worse, not even a culmination. And this is what I believe. I think he is potentially more of a gateway 
this is not the end stage. And that, that point that you said, remember that he's still in command. There's a moment now where many on the left are looking at police violence in the streets and the way Trump has sort of used it and so on and said, we're in all out fascism now. And I actually disagree with that. And anyone says, this is the worst it can be. We haven't seen anything. We haven't seen anything. Remember, he can still tell troops to open fire. He really can do that. We can have our Tiananmen Square and more. We can have Kent State times 100. We can have a candidate who, this is another area where I think the sort of the liberals who want to reassure themselves that all is in good order, they're not paying attention to the enduring power of the judges. They're also not paying attention to, you have to sort of look at the military. Recently, he elevated a general to the third spot at the Pentagon who is a Trumpist loyalist. I haven't stayed up to date, so that may have been blocked already. There was enough sort of uh, ugly racist rhetoric in this man's past that they might be able to block him, but that doesn't account for all the other generals, admirals, colonels, majors, middle-level guys who have been promoted. And the others who weren't going along are not being promoted. All that transformation is there. I think to understand the sort of the evolution of Trump, I did the similar kind of reporting in 2016, where I traveled around the country for a New York Times Magazine story, looking at the role of religion in Israelis. And in 2016, what you saw was what's called the prosperity gospel. This is sort of a country cousin to your kind of uh, the evangelism, you know. It's a televangelist you see late at night that says, you know, send me a love offering of $100 and it'll return to you tenfold. And you can know that God loves me because look at my private jet. The idea that God wants you to get rich. That was the theological tone of Trump's rallies in 2016. That changed for his believers. They say, well, look, we won. He promised us winning and we won and we won and we won. Now it's about purging enemies within. It's a much darker tone. I was in those rallies in 2016, I'm in those rallies now. It's much darker, much more emphasized are stories just like that one you mentioned from Tulsa where he describes, and he knows what he's doing. He says a tough hombre, a tough hombre, that's his way of saying it's a man of color, sneaks into the window, uh, an innocent woman, doesn't mention anything about her race because that makes her white. Uh, the race only needs to be mentioned if it's not white. While her husband, a traveling salesman, which is a sort of weird, you know, a traveling, what is it? This sounds like 1950 or something. A traveling salesman, a husband is away. And I mean, this is in its most grotesque form, a rape fantasy. Yeah. And he's invoking that. And it's, he wants it to be titillating and pornographic and at the same time terrifying. At Tulsa, he only played that out for a couple of minutes. In a lot of his speeches, he will extend that riff for a long time with incredible violence. Most of this is not reported on by the press because they don't see it as political. They just see it as window dressing. I went to a rally in Hershey, Pennsylvania. It must have been for 20 minutes. He described decapitations, disembowelments. These were all done by the animals, the, uh, the illegals that the Democratic Party, he says, goes through the prisons and looks for the worst guys and releases them into the countryside to, to wreak havoc on, again, implicitly white Americans. He talked about people carving out hearts and eating them. I mean, it was a slasher pick, a horror movie. None of that made the news. And I think that the way that the press has sort of overlooked that, they keep trying to understand Trump in terms of ordinary politics. And Trump can't tell them often enough I could care less about ordinary politics. I can go this way or that way on a policy. It doesn't particularly matter.
right? I mean, Trump could tomorrow decide he's not going to do the wall anymore. He'd lose a little support, not that much. It's not about the actual actions. It's about the rage, the anger, and fundamentally, the fascist tone, the, the, yeah. the fascist cult of personality. So here he is. He is on his heels now, no doubt. His, his poll numbers are down. He's lost some allies. It's not going the way he wants. And we see the New York Times today, Frank Bruning, the New York Times op-ed piece, Trump is toast. Don't worry. It's all set. Don't worry. Done. So, Nightmare someone, over. Someone collected a collection of headlines from 2016, from this same point in time in the year saying, the 2016 election is already over. Hillary is guaranteed to win. Don't worry. And so on. Cannot learn because it's, I think it's too frightening to recognize the possibility democracy might not be in danger. Democracy might already be broken. The damage is already done. We don't just have to get back on course. We have to build something new. Trump knows that. He's building something new. And Tulsa, you saw all the same moves he does on all his speeches, but sort of turned up to 11. You saw more explicit. There were no longer dog whistles to the QAnon network of conspiracy theories. They were straight shout outs. He said, if the Democrats win, if Joe Biden wins, there'll be support for late term abortion. This is false. And he says, and this is this is the kicker after birth execution, which, you know, technically in America, we already have. It's called the death penalty after birth execution. That's straight up QAnon, the idea that the Democrats actually want to murder babies, not 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 fetuses in the womb, actually babies in the world. They actually want to kill babies. That's QAnon conspiracy stuff. I think that was the first time I'd ever heard him go that far. That's a sign that he is upset about the situation. He was upset about that small crowd. So this idea that, oh, we've also seen that Trump, Trump will probably resign. I hope I'm wrong. Maybe he will. There's nothing in his life to suggest that he will. There's much to suggest that he will snarl and hit and do as much damage as he can. I think that what you said is both profoundly true and also requires a profound reckoning in terms of what our responsibility is. If that is true, which I, I believe it is, I would say this past week alone, you can see the escalation yeah. in, in his tone, in his terror, t tenor, in his actions. And I think that you're right, that fascism hasn't consolidated yet, that the hour is, is very late, but I would argue it, it's not too late. And this really is a moment for people of conscience to seize and not to squander and not to do the very um, dangerous disservice of saying, as far too many do, that he is over. One of the things that we put out in a recent statement, Refuse Fashion wrote, should we fail to take to the streets and stay to win, do not think for a second that the fascist agenda of the Trump-Pence regime could not become the law of the land. I think that that's a really important thing for people to reckon with, but also that the last four weeks of sustained protests has shown us that another future is possible. If the demand that Trump-Pence must go now becomes part of a great rising in the streets against police murder, and that without going all the way to drive this regime from power, the movement for Black lives and every struggle for justice will be crushed. What would happen if Pence were president? 
It's a really good question, actually. And I think the way you answer that is as much has been made of the transactional nature of Trump's deal with the Christian right. And Pence was the deal. You know, and this is a point we made in the, the Netflix documentary, The Family. That Pence is not Trump's kind of guy. Who He did want Chris Christie to be VP. You know, that was a guy he could hang around with and a kind of a gangsterish character like himself. Pence was the deal. So that's a straight up transaction. But it's not just transactional, it's transformative. Both sides of that deal, and I think Trump understands this. I'm not one of those people who think Trump's an idiot. Trump just isn't interested in anything that doesn't serve him. He's very cunning about that which serves him. And he knows that a good deal is transformative. The Christian right is different than it was in 2016. The tr Christian right is far more nationalist. The Christian right is much more comfortable with racism. I mean, it's always been racist, but now with a kind of explicit racism, it's much more comfortable with anger, vulgarity, violence, all of which were there simmering beneath the surface. Trump brings it to the surface. Trump, meanwhile, is transformed by this because there's a sense in which Trump has, has drunk his own Kool-Aid. When he said, I'm the chosen one, I hate to break it to everybody, he was joking. He was joking. But that's Trump's rhetorical style. You tell a joke, and then you say, actually, I'm not joking. No, 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 I'm just joking. I'm joking. If you think of every bully you've ever encountered and that kind of sort of back and forth, it's that same, same rhetorical move. He's come to sort of see himself as wrapped in the flag and as he's actually done, you know, hugging a cross and, and so on. We can see what's happened to Trump. What's happened to Pence? Pence, who was before this an establishment Christian conservative, loyal servant of the Koch brothers, had some very peculiar ideas on his own. If you go back and read Pence's early speeches, you find some remarkable things. One where he describes his opposition to abortion as rooted in his study of ancient gynecology, which is a field I didn't know existed. Or he, you know, he talks about having done such a deep study of MLK. He just knows if MLK were alive today, his main issue would be fighting abortion. So he's got some odd ideas, but he knows how to sort of present himself. But I think, on the other hand, Trumpism has transformed him. I don't think Pence is any escape from Trumpism at all. I've seen Pence speak a number of times. He's no Trump. And this is a thing that makes people angry. Trump is one of the best orders I've ever seen. He's just not doing speeches the way that we think speeches should be done. But in terms of working a crowd, he owns it. Pence isn't at that level. He's not bad. He, he can take an arena of 22,000 people and he can hold their attention. So I don't think Pence is an escape, those ideas. Let's, let's, let's just get Trump out and then Pence will be there and he'll be bad, but we can work with that. You've got to look at Trumpism. Trumpism as the movement of which Pence is part. You know, the only sort of Republican that I think you really might say, because they all think they made this deal, right? The only one that I think actually holds himself outside of the deal, even as he benefits from it, is McConnell, who is as savvy an operator as Trump. I don't think Pence is a softer future. It's at the same time, I should say this, because this is a widely misunderstood about the Christian right. People look at Mike Pence, they look at the way he calls his wife mother, which is very creepy, and his rules about not being in the same room with a, a woman unless other people are around and all these kinds of things. And they think that the, the, the future that Pence dreams of is Handmaid's Tale. It's not. Handmaid's Tale, you'll find plenty of fascination with Handmaid's Tale, the TV series, amongst conservative evangelicals, because they know that that's not their picture. They know that Margaret Atwood is not basing it on them. She based it on the Iranian Revolution, East Germany, 
and the Puritans. Contemporary Christian conservatism is not so dour. We see it at a Trump rally. A Trump rally. A friend of mine coined the Trump rally because people go from rally to rally. They're such fans. You get there, you spend all day tailgating in the parking lot. Plenty of people get high or drunk in the parking lot. There's all kinds of crazy merchandise. There's lots of terrible dancing. It's just like the hateful dead, not the grateful dead, but the hateful dead. There's much more of a, a kind of a, a carnival, a really scary carnival, but it's a carnival attitude toward it. And I think that's the Christian right that we face now. That's a fascistic Christian right. One of the points you starkly pose in your, I think it's not your latest, your shorter Vanity Fair article, but the longer one, is that you wrote, Trump is no longer storming the gates. He holds power. And you talk about, in a really clarifying way, this evolution, if you will, from MAGA, make America great again, to CAG, keep America great. The center, you know, part of my reading and my trying to understand it is like the ridding of, of demons, if you will, that are that are amidst us and exacting revenge. With that spirit of, you know, what it, was it Peterson's word of like, don't mess with God's children. As Refuse Fascism has written about this idea of exacting revenge against the liberation movements, against all that was re represented in the 1960s, any and all social progress that was won over the past five decades, if you will. How do you see this exacting revenge, that whole, that spirit playing out now? What do you think that the lessons in this are? In some ways, the most dangerous aspect of it, and, and, and some might disagree with me here, but I'm not, I'm not speaking from my position as a journalist, because in fact, I, I approach this fairly critically. My colleagues who, when covering Trump rallies, he always has a sort of a metal cage in the middle of the arena, and it's a wrestling prop. And so that there's a point in every, in, every, in every show where he turns and he says, and look at those scum, and everyone turns around, and you fly the birds, and you scream at them, and it's just sort of, it's the most ecstatic moment of the night. But I always wonder to my colleagues, why do you getting into the metal cage? Why do you keep serving as a prop like that? Um, why don't you keep going around? So I, I'm not defending journalism just sort of as a journalist, but I do think that especially now compared to 2016, the enemy within for Trump, and, and keep in mind all authoritarians need an enemy within. And the role that an enemy within is, it has, it, it's very specific. Uh, Black Lives Matter cannot ultimately be the enemy within. It's an enemy, but it's not the enemy within. Immigrants can't be the enemy within. They can be the enemy, but they're not an enemy within. And the reason why is to the Trump mind, which assumes a normalness of whiteness. And they think of all immigrants. So I can see what an immigrant looks like. They assume they're all not white. The enemy within has to be invisible, as it was for the Jews in Nazi Germany. Or, or as it was for the Nazis with the Jews, as it was for the Jews in Tsarist Russia as well, as it was for communists in the United States in World War II for a period in the culture wars where the, the real enemy within. Remember, W campaigned in 2004. His big issue was stop same-sex marriage. And there was this archetype, the gay man, singular, right? And it stood for everything, the gay man. And they could be anywhere. Your school teacher could be one and you wouldn't even know. So who's going to work like an enemy within journalists? And that's why it's the big hate line. At a Trump rally, the volume goes up for different issues. Talking about religious freedom, it's very loud. Talk about guns and Second Amendment, it's even louder. Talking about hating the press, that's the joy. 
that's the ecstasy because it's the enemy within could be anybody your own your own child could become a journalist you might not even know it i think that's the kind of the mobilization point it doesn't mean that journalists are at the most danger they're they're in danger certainly but that's the mobilization if you have that enemy within that license everything else so you see Fox News, in fact, sort of saying, we're in a race war. Did you see this one of the hosts the other day said, we're in a race war because American blacks are listening to these liberal elites in the media. This is as old as racism goes. This is, you, you go in the deep South, you'll find the same narrative. Oh, our people love being here on the plantation. It's just those agitators that get them worked up. It's also this idea that, in fact, the only people who have agency are white people. Black people have no agency on their own. They could never have organized Black Lives Matter on their own in this thinking. It must be CNN's fault. So I think that's the twist and the emphasis, the emphasis on fake news. You see it every day in the tweets. You see it in the rallies. You even see it in those horrific things, like when he's in Hershey, Pennsylvania, the so-called sweetest place on earth, where they make Hershey. It's outside. You were inside. <laughs> I was protesting outside. Yeah. <laughs> And, and well, that's a good, so you know it was crowded, which is one of those things. When I came back from those rallies, I did an informal social media survey because I would tell people how big, how well organized they were. No one would believe it. And then I'd say, do you think these are astroturf? Do you think it's smoke and mirrors, just camera work to make it look big, or do you think it's real? I got about a thousand responses. 75%, 750 said it's either astroturf or smoke and mirrors, it's all paid act. These are the best actors I have ever met if they are actors, they are really good. Um, this big crowd, you know you know, it was a big crowd in Hershey, Pennsylvania, the Amish came out for him. They're not even supposed to vote and they came out for him. In that crowd, you know, he, he's sort of working that crowd and he's talking again, he's saying in Philadelphia, they're going through the prisons to find these animals, rapists, child molesters to release into the countryside. Who has agency in that story? A hidden elite. Journalists are an invisible enemy because they're good in that way. And the Tulsa speech, part of the turning point was he massively amped up the rhetoric of the secret control of Biden. Look, Biden is no radical. You can't make this case for Joe Biden, but there's secret people controlling him. He, he said that he was secretly controlled 11 times and called him a puppet twice, 13 times. You know, you talk to people in the crowd, Soros, George Soros is a possibility. AOC is part of that because she's in it with Soros. And some people will say Rothschilds. Some people who are really old school will say the Jews. But most of them don't even understand that what they're doing is using the rhetoric of the protocols of the elders of Zion remade. Most of them don't think they're anti-Semitic at all. So it's always a secret elite. There's the rapist releasing the countryside, but who is this they that is going through the jails? Who is this they that is controlling Biden? He's not gonna answer that question because that's become the central belief. This sort of, you're in it with Trump, you know something about what's really going on. You're not one of those rubes who really thinks Joe Biden is the candidate, are you? Obviously he's being controlled. That's really potent and terribly dangerous. And I think something that too many of my colleagues in the press have been slow to pick up on because it's so outlandish. I think it's, it, it's such a sort of uh, Manchurian candidate, science fiction-y sort of storyline. It is a storyline the President of the United States is treating every day. It's a storyline he gives to tens of thousands at his rallies. And it's a storyline that has become mainstream such that that's not fringe anymore. You and me here talking, we're fringe. They're not fringe. They are right now 
in the mainstream. One of the things that what you say makes me think about, do you think there's a possibility of a civil war? I do. I do. I think it's a very low possibility. Um, you know, I don't know what the percentage is. If we want to say a 5% chance, that's about 4.999% uh, more than I would have said my whole life. I mean, I, I, I wrote in, in 2008 a book called The Family about the oldest, most influential Christian conservative organization. And I include a chapter called The F Word. The F Word, of course, is fascism. And the family, the family was actually recruiting Nazi war criminals after World War II. I mean, they were very close to fascism, but not that close. In fact, at one point, there was an, uh, an early incarnation. They had a Sieg Hail salute, but I found the minutes of their meeting where they decided not to do it because it was too fascist, underlined. Too fascist, you know, it's sort of like Little Red Riding, and this one's too big, this one's too little, this one's just right. Too fascist. And in the F word, I argue fascism, European style fascism, could not come to America. I say, that, look, there's more than one kind of bad under the sun. There's other kinds of authoritarianisms, but that kind of fascism couldn't come because of fundamentalism, because we couldn't go with a Fuhrer because we had Jesus, right? Trump has proved me wrong. Trump has proved me wrong. And I think now all bets are off. If you have as centrist a figure as Joe Biden saying, yes, he's concerned that if Trump loses, he won't leave office, that's on the table. Also, spending a lot of time in right-wing circles, I know that civil war rhetoric is so common, and I've been reporting on the right for a long time. It used to be a fringe militia thing. That was a thing that people in suits and ties are talking about, with enthusiasm, excitement, you know, this sort of fantasy. It becomes a civil war. And I think they're actually wrong about this. This is good news. They say, you know, and of course the military will be on our side. I don't think that's a foregone conclusion at all. On the other hand, I think that's, possibly delusional. As delusional, I have to say it, and I hope this doesn't piss people off there. This idea that the left should arm itself, good luck. Good luck, like, you know, these little lefty militias, they got an AR-15. It's a negation of understanding that who's in power, what you're up against, and, and what it, it means to have a state apparatus. <laughs> and, what your state violence and what state violence is capable well, is, so yeah. police, We have this idea right now, the police is as out of control. Here's the horrible news. They're being incredibly restrained. I mean, think about Newark in 1968, where they just said, you know what, to hell with it. They just opened fire, right? Mm -hmm. They haven't done that yet. They can do it. You and know, people who want to do it, and they may do it, right? So, so we need to operate that, that shouldn't cow us. But I remember uh, in 2011, I think it was, Occupy Wall Street was going on, right? And, and it was going on. And when Mike Bloomberg, that great liberal champion, decided to crack down, how long did it take him to get rid of Occupy Wall Street? I was there, about 40 minutes. Right. You know, when the police decided to move, that was that. We saw in Seattle today, they thought, oh, they're never going to get him. The police, they can make quick work of it. You can't win going toe for toe with the apparatus of the state. That's, that's not the way to win it. And I think Trump knows that. And I think that's the scary thing is he controls that apparatus. I think that there's a need for people to understand with a lot of clarity what it is that we face. Again, it is not fascism fully consolidated or people, <laughs> we wouldn't be having this conversation. But 
we are very much on, on the march. It is advancing. And what we do matters a tremendous deal, not just for lives here, but really all over the world when you talk about what this regime is indeed capable of. And the continuity of the past, the horrors that they extend, can never be an excuse for, for the urgency to act in the present. And so I think that that's something that I try to, to hold with me. And I think one of the things that scares this regime the most and you could see it, you could see it in their response, is this nonviolent sustained protest. And the fact that it, and that it facts that it's growing, well, that it was growing. I don't want to make it declarative. It needs to keep growing, I'll say that. That will be a true statement. But the breadth and the depth that it had, it has crossed nationalities and gender identities and sexual orientations and, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds, it really has been broad. And that is an incredible strength. And I do think that that is what scares this regime the most, is people in the streets not backing down and not being provoked, being determined, but not being provoked. So I wanted to come to my last question. Trump supporters, and to some extent, broader sections of the the GOP base have been using terroristic violence from the start. Intimidation during the 2000 election recount, the bombing of abortion clinics, to all the lone wolves and incel mass shootings, to the storming of the Michigan State Capitol. When he tells his fascist base that you know what to do and go to the polls and the rest, against people he's accusing, right, the Democrats, child murder, you know, insinuate sex trafficking rings alongside treason and and on. Do you see this erupting on a new level during or after the election? What do you see him setting this the stage for, like, in terms of what would happen if he loses? He likes deniability. I mean, that's the, the, the one bit of good news, I think, is that he, we've seen this throughout his career and also, but also here now that he's in power, he's sort of squeamish. You get this sort of weird situation now where Joe Biden's bragging that he'll fight worse than, than Trump, you know? And it is true, Trump is not particularly interested in that because there's not much in it for him. But he's also a little bit squeamish. He likes other people to do the violence. And you look at the rallies and, and that thing he said, you know what to do. That was something he said at, at um, the Tulsa rally. He said, now we come to November 3rd and, you know, unless we're really stupid, we reelect me, unless we're really stupid. And then you know what to do. You know what to do. He says it twice and he repeats it. And, and just as you say, if you think, I think of a, a, the, the figure that I really sort of spent the most time with in that, that, that Manny Fair story is a woman named Diane, Obama voter in the past. When I earlier said, you know, sort of evangelical who has an orphanage in, in Haiti, that's her. Sure. And in fact, that's part of where her disillusionment came from, was seeing the god-awful mess that the Clintons, I mean, the Clintons, by any measure, by Bill Clinton's own measure, just did horrible things in Haiti. But she lacked the terms, the structural critique. She didn't have the term neoliberalism to understand that. So she went to spiritual war. She went to the terms of her church. And then when Trump comes along and says, she's seen the wreckage, right? And Trump says, you know what? Not only do they do that, they're actually criminals. And she's like, yeah. And then someone QAnon comes along and says, and they traffic children. 
She says, I bet they do. And, and someone else comes along and says, they eat children, which is a, a fairly far more widespread belief than you'd imagine, cannibalism. She says, yes. Now, if you believe that someone is eating children and the president is saying, you know what to do, you're going to say, by any means necessary. That was where QAnon began uh, back in 2017. A man reading this stuff online, thinking that the Democrats are trafficking children through a pizzeria in Washington. And he knew this because in WikiLeaks, they would often talk about meeting at this pizzeria. Obviously, they couldn't be going there for pizza. <laughs> what else could you go to a pizzeria for? I know children child trafficking anyway he shows up with a, an assault rifle and opens fire because if you believe this and if your president is confirming it saying they're going to do afterbirth execution no that's maybe this conspiracy theory but the president of the united states just said it and then he told me i know what to do they're killing babies i know what to do i end the story with diane i begin it with a man named yusuf jones who had in his own terms had served 40 days and 40 nights in jail because he had done the same thing. He'd called a pizzeria in Washington. He didn't get the right one, but he figured pizza, Washington, D.C., it's all part of the conspiracy theory. He wasn't crazy. He was just believing this, and he had threatened to come and shoot them. He knew what to do. So I think that mobilization, and, and Trump, if someone does that kind of violence, Trump won't. Just like that, that white power tweet, mm -hmm. I didn't hear it. Doesn't say it's terrible. It's wrong. I I despise. No, there is no there is no denouncing it. And then, but she, there's no taking responsibility for it either. I didn't hear it. No, I'm not responsible for anything. Someone shoots in my name. Not my fault. I didn't pull the trigger. Right. And then to almost double down on it. On the other hand, you know, in in the same breath. What was it? The day after or two days later, retweeting the video of the couple in St. Louis pointing their, you know, assault-style weapon at Our people are very peaceful. Because our people are very, their side is very violent. Our people are very peaceful. But our side is tough, he says. And if they decide to get violent, that's going to be a terrible day, right? So, like, no, 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 don't do violence. But if you do, kill them all. It's, it's kind of that weird double signal of Trumpism. And I think it makes it hard for a lot of secular folks, a lot of liberals to hear it because it is contradictory. They dismiss that as incoherent. It's not incoherent. It is a coherent message of violence. I think that that makes it tremendously ominous because so many people can cannot spot it or easily ignore it, except the forces that he's marshalling. Trump is not losing an election. He is setting the stage to declare any outcome other than his victory illegitimate that he's backed up by a GOP willing to rig the elections and the violence of police, military, and bikers for Trump. Trump, and he's declaring his determination to prevail. You've given us so much to think about and so much to act upon. Those of us who are on the side of humanity being equally as determined to prevail. So I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to Inside Without Now. I hope you got a lot out of the discussion with Jeff Charlotte and were inspired to learn more about the Christian fascists within the Trump-Pence regime and better understand why we always say the Trump-Pence regime must go. To stop an American fascism that threatens the very future of humanity and the planet, the necessary demand is Trump-Pence out now. This is a moment to seize. 
Let us change the course of history, not for ourselves alone, but for all of humanity. We call on everyone to see that the fight for justice now must include a growing movement of people, the millions who do not want to live under white supremacist mob rule in a fascist America, preparing to fill the streets in sustained, nonviolent protests to drive the Trump-Pence regime from power. You can get involved at refusefascism.org. Follow us at refusefascism. Support the movement by donating at refusefascism.org or via Venmo, refuse-fascism, or Kasha, refuse-fascism. Donations can also be made via PayPal, paypal.me backslash refuse-fascism. In the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. Trump-Pence, out now. See you in the streets soon.